pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask for your kingdom to come on the earth. You said that the kingdom of heaven is among us. It is here. It is in our midst. It is where your people are. It is where you are enthroned as king. So to the extent that each one of us is submitted to your kingship, your kingdom is in our midst. And to the extent that gangbangers repent and submit to King Jesus, there is the kingdom of God. And there we will see peace and blessing. To the extent that homosexuals, to the extent that deadbeat dads, to the extent that addicts, to the extent that corrupt politicians, to the extent that racist cops repent and bow the knee to King Jesus. We will see peace and blessedness on this earth. Come, Lord Jesus. Be king of our city. Be king of Chicago. And be king of each and every one of us. Lord, let none of us be in rebellion at any point to your kingship. Lord, bring your presence just as it is now. Just as it is in heaven, Lord. Bring it Monday. Bring it Tuesday. Bring it to our jobs. Bring it to everywhere we go, Lord, on the train. We love you. We bless you. Just take a few moments in your own heart. Just think of three people. You know their lives are a wreck. Because they are outside the kingdom. People you know, intercede for them right now. God is moving. God answers your prayers. God's spirit moves to and fro over the earth. Seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Let God see you right now, earnestly seeking Him. Lord, hear and, our, hear and answer our prayers. Think of three people you know. Lord, for everybody that's in our hearts, I think of my brother, Ramey, my sister, Jocelyn, my other sister, Emily. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We all know so many lost, perishing people. We lift them up to you. We pray for your kingdom to come in their lives. For everybody that's being lifted up in prayer right now, we pray for your kingdom to come in their lives. We pray they will never be the same. We pray that they will step out of the kingdom of darkness. In Jesus' name, that the power and authority of the devil would be broken over them. In the name of Jesus. And they would cross over into the kingdom of your beloved son. You are a mighty God. You are mighty to save. Come on. I want to hear some, some cries. Do you believe that God will answer your prayers? When we began prayer going into second service, Griselda uh, was, was reading the verse about the widow who cried out day and night. Will you cry out like it matters? Will you cry out like prayer works? Will you cry out like prayer brings heaven to earth? Jesus, save, save, oh Lord, save, oh Lord.
Come on. If you believe that God is bringing his kingdom to this earth, can you give him a shout of praise and a hand clap? Hallelujah. 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 Woo. You may be seated in the house of God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jared Walker, one of the pastoral staff here at Metro Praise International. Guys, how's the lighting look here? Is it good? We fixed the problem from last time. It was, it was not um, where it was supposed to be. It was, it was in a weird place last time. Does it look good? Looks good. Okay, good. One of the pastoral staff here, good to see you all. I am here in lieu of Pastor Joe, who is um, in Florida. Actually, he's in New Orleans right now with his family. So just pray for them, you know, uh, in the midst of probably warmer weather than what we're having. And we're going to continue right where we left off in our series on 1 John. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Today we're going to answer the question, who are the children of God? Who are the children of God? And how do you think the world would, would usually answer that question? You ask somebody on the street, they would usually say, well, we're all the children of God. You ever heard that sentiment before? We're all God's children. God loves us all. And what's implied there is universalism. Someone say that, universalism. If you haven't used, uh, learned that ism yet, be thankful. It's an ism that theological liberals like to use to basically say that because God loves all and we're all his children, then we're all going to heaven no matter what. You ever heard that said before? When, when it is said we're all God's children, that's often what is meant behind that statement. And that is not, in fact, the case. We are all God's children in the sense that we derive our being from Him. The Scriptures say that we are His offspring. In Him we live and move and have our being. But this text is clear, and many places in the Bible are clear that not all are God's children. Spoiler alert, some people are the devil's children. You know any devil's child? Anybody there? A devil's child? Right? Some people are, God, are, are not God's children. They are the devil's children. Some people are God's enemies. And so John, the apostle, wants us to know the difference. Before we get into that, though, I want to share with you some good news. As we read the text, 1 John 2.28, I'm going to start 2.28 through 3.3, 3, and we're going to talk about the blessed hope of God's children. So if you are indeed a child of God, raise your hand. Are you a child of God? I want to talk to you about the good things that are in store for you. It says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Say that with me. Born of him. More on that in a little bit. Very important though. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 
And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And so what I want you to begin to see is the very first word of chapter 3, verse 1. What is that? See. Chapter 3, verse 1. Make sure we're there. See. Everyone see that word? Okay. If you can't see something, then, so, then, then there is a problem with your vision, correct? If you cannot see the great love the Father has lavished on us, you have a vision problem. Amen? And the reason I say that and the reason we're going to spend a lot of time just on that statement right there is because this is a command. It's an exhortation. In the English language, the word see is kind of plain, like, oh, I'm just going to look at it. Oh, there's the Father's love. Okay, I see it. But the word in Greek actually means to stare at, to discern clearly, to experience. The saying is true that familiarity breeds contempt. And it is true that many Christians have become too familiar with the love of God. Stop me if you've heard this. Jesus loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. You can hear those words so many times that they, they've lost all meaning. Oh yeah, I know God loves me. And then you kind of have an, a mental assent. Oh yeah, God loves me. God is love. Yeah, yeah great, great, great. And yet we become so casual and cavalier about it that it really means nothing to us. And the love of God has no impact on how we live our lives. But we are told here to behold. That is what the King James will tell us. Behold what great love the Father has lavished. And I want to do that. I want to do that with you all this morning. So let's look at a few passages here. Let's start in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. What great love. Let's take a few minutes to really contemplate the love of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Isn't that wonderful? Imagine your heart is a vessel, and the picture that you get is that God is pouring out His love like refreshing cool liquid into the empty vessel of your heart. Once upon a time, your vessel was, as, was bone dry. It was as dry as a desert, and you were looking to fill it. You were looking to fill your heart and find love in a bed find love in a bottle, find love in achievement, find love in all these superficial things and all these people. And that was not just a search for love, but it was the God-shaped hole in your heart because you see God is love. And even sinners can sense that. That's why so many songs in the world are, are love songs. They're either songs about the positive experience of love or about heartbreak. But it goes to show we're all looking for love. 
But most of us are looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> right? You're looking for love in places that will not satisfy. And so God, when you come to Christ, fills your heart. He's not stingy. It's not a drop. It's not a trickle. It's not just halfway full. Like when I give my kids a cup of milk, I, I fill it like a quarter because I figure that they're going to spill it anyway. So I, he, he pours it. He fills my vessel to overflowing. Just as John chapter 7 says, Jesus fills our hearts with streams of living water. They flow from our inmost being. That's, that's the picture that's being given there. He pours his love into our hearts. And how many can point back to a time of satisfaction and joy that they experienced when they first encountered the Lord. You see, a lot of us, we point back to like a honeymoon phase that we had with the Lord. And I understand that there can be great zeal early on in the Christian walk. Like when you first get saved, you're just so passionate, you're just so excited. But God forbid you should ever leave your first love. And what happens when we leave our first love is really that we forget God's love for us. When we forget God's love for us, we forget to love Him. And so let's read on. No, in, in Romans. Romans 5, 6. Because we, we still have a lot to talk about. By the way, Romans was written by who? Paul. Paul gets a bad rap among theological liberals. They think that he's very harsh, very hard-nosed, but he has a lot to say about God's love. If you take Paul out of the Bible, you have some of the best, best stuff about love, about God's love, removed from the Bible if you take Paul out of there. And we call John the apostle of love, and he talks about that in his letters, but just as much in, in Paul as well. It says here, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly be uh, dared to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul is, is talking about this principle that, you know, if we were to sacrifice our life for somebody, who would it be? It would be your child. It would be your spouse. It would be someone you love. It would be someone that you feel is deserving of your love. For a good person, we might possibly dare to die. But how many would die for a pedophile? How many would die for a stranger? Now, you can be super spiritual and say, oh, yes, I would because I'm called to love everybody. But let's see, let's see that put to the test. Would you lay your life down for a scumbag, someone who doesn't deserve it. And yet that's what Jesus did for us. While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So you, on your worst day, committing your worst deed, Christ died for you. It says he demonstrated his love. Love must be demonstrated. We read on in 1 John 3, that we should not love merely in words, but with action and in truth. And that's how God loves, in action and in truth. God just doesn't send you a text saying, oh, I love you, I heart you, or whatever. Like, how many know, like, people have said I love you, and they don't mean it? 
He just doesn't say he loves you. He demonstrates it. And how? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still powerless, he died for the ungodly. You were ungodly. I don't know about you, but I can remember the horrific things, the perverse things I gazed on on my computer screen. God loved a perv like me. I can remember as a high school senior shaking my fist at God, saying, God, you hate me and I hate you. I can remember my arrogance, breaking God's commands, living like an absolute fool. I did not deserve God's love. Folks, you got to understand this. One of the reasons we take God's love for granted is we don't understand that we don't deserve it. When you understand the depths of depravity and sin, you will see God's love as much that much greater. You will see God's the, the diamond of God's love will shine much greater against the vel, you know, like like at a jeweler, the velvet black backdrop, right? The velvet black backdrop of your sin, the darkness of your sin contrasted with the brightness of God's love and goodness. Understanding the depths of your depravity, one of the misunderstandings about God's love is that it's kind of like the Hallmark version. It's very sentimental, very soupy, very syrupy. But the Bible actually says in the Psalms that God hates the wicked. What do you do with that verse? Do you disagree with the Bible at that point? And if God hates the wicked and you act wickedly, what does that mean? Well, we read here that we were the enemies of God. Do the enemies of God go to heaven? The enemies of God go to hell. Pharaoh went to hell. Hitler went to hell. Do you understand? People who reject God and choose to live as his enemies, they go to hell. We don't deserve his love, yet he loves us anyway. The way I like to explain this dichotomy is that we are his beloved enemies you have done nothing to deserve his love in fact you have done everything to disqualify yourself and even if you're a self-righteous goody two-shows maybe you're even religious God is willing to forgive you of the sin of pride arrogance because that's at the heart of all sin people are rebels against God, against a good God, against a holy God, against a righteous God. When I go and do evangelism, I'm just astounded that so many people are angry at such a good God. How could you, it's like, it's like, how could you, how could you hate someone who's so good? How could you hate someone who's so loving? Like, it's like Keanu Reeves. Like, Keanu Reeves is just the it guy right now. Like, no one can hate Keanu Reeves. If you hate Keanu Reeves, there's something wrong with you, right? How can you hate such a good God, such a loving God, such a righteous God, such a glorious God? How could people rage against him and want to distance themselves from him and act like he doesn't exist? And yet that's where we all were. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That was the only sufficient demonstration of God's love. Why? Because that's the only way you and I could be saved. That Jesus died in your place for your sins. 
I don't want to get too ahead of myself because we want to talk about in the coming verses how he takes away our sin. But you have to understand that. It was not merely a sentiment. When God demonstrated his love, we know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. God being God could give you a billion dollars and it mean nothing to him. God being God could create a whole other planet for you to live on and it mean nothing to him. When God gave his son, he gave his best. He gave the only thing that could truly cost him something he gave of his very self, the father giving the son. When it was the son dying on the cross, he suffered immensely, immeasurably, but it wasn't just the son suffering. We must understand the father did not die on the cross. The Trinity teaches that they're distinct, right? But I would imagine the suffering of the father watching the son bear his sins, like if I was watching my own child suffer. And he did it for us who don't deserve it. We don't. So we get casual with the love of God. We become nearsighted, forgetting that we've been cleansed of our past sins. Second Peter chapter 1 teaches that. We, we forget what it was like to be lost. We forget how desperate we were, how desperate and how humbled we had to be to recognize that we needed Jesus in the first place. And for some of you, your old life is starting to look rather appealing. The bad old days are starting to look like the good old days. That's the beginning of the end, my friend. When you stop, remember the puke and the regret and the, and the STDs and the broken heart, and you just start remembering, man, me and Chacho, man, we used to have a lot of fun, man. Oh, you know, you, and your, your BC days start to sound like the good old days. You, are, you become nearsighted, forgetting that you've been cleansed, forgetting you've been forgiven, and you cannot behold the love that God has lavished on you. You take it for granted. Let's read some more passages. Let's look at Psalm 103, one of my absolute favorite psalms. Psalm 103. says this, praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. You know what that means? That means that the psalmist says, my soul, he's commanding his soul, he's willing himself, praise the Lord. You ever not feel like praising the Lord? getting up, clapping your hands, singing, thanking Him, reading your Bible. You don't feel like praising Him. Well, guess what? Feelings just want to be felt. And they don't care about the consequence of you feeling them. And many times the will has to precede the feeling. And so He wills Himself. Praise the Lord. All my inmost being, praise His holy name. He goes on, verse 2. Praise the Lord, my soul. And forget not all his benefits, who heals all your sins. Or not heals, but forgives, sorry. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. 
who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And we could read on. This is a great psalm. But we'll stop there. Forget not all his benefits. For not, forget not that you have been cleansed from your past sins. Forget not that he has loved you when you did not deserve it. Forget not the vastness of it. We have more verses to read. We're not done beholding. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. A powerful prayer. Ephesians 3.14. This is the prayer of Paul for the church at Ephesus. And you could pray this prayer verbatim for yourself and all your friends. Powerful biblical prayer right here. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name, its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That was Paul's continual prayer for these people. Is that your continual prayer? Or do you think you got it? When I approach people, I say, you want to talk about Jesus? Oh, I already know about that. I already know about that. They think that because they have agreed with a few basic facts about Jesus that they got all that. If your life hasn't been rocked and transformed by Jesus, uh, trust me, you haven't got it. If you're... if. Talking about Jesus to you is like talking about Amway or multi-level marketing and you have all the excitement of a root canal. You don't know Jesus. You don't know what I'm talking about. When I talk to you about the love of God, I know that. You feel like you graduated. I graduated. I know everything there is to know about God's love. You, The prayer that you need to pray is that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Don't tell me you know everything about the love of God. It surpasses knowledge. Albert Einstein can never plumb the depths of God's love. No theologian could ever plumb the depths of God's love. Do you understand that? They can never search its heights. They can never know. It is a... It is an ocean, it is an endless reservoir that we are continually discovering throughout our lives and into eternity. And so we make it our prayer and our desire that we may behold the great love that He lavishes upon us. It's like when you get your tax return, you tend to get lavish. You're not stingy. Okay, we're going to, we're going to uh, Fogo. Okay, because sometimes you go to a restaurant, you're like, uh, just water for me. You know? No, I want the, I want, you got apps, you got the, you got the drink, you got dessert, you know, you're going all out, you're lavish. 
God's love is not stingy, is it? It's lavish, it's rich. Let's read another passage, Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 31. I want you to get this. Here we go. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who, is, who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one condemns us. If it were, it would be Jesus Christ who died. More than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. You get that. So the one who should have judged you, the one who should, who should be banging the gavel to send you to hell, is at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for you. He's actually pleading your case instead of condemning you. Verse 35 who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Give him some praise. Hallelujah. Now I intend to preach first, John, not Romans. So I'm not going to attempt to exegete that, but isn't that wonderful? Isn't that rich? God's love for His holy people, the benefits He bestows upon His holy people. What a mighty God we serve. I have one more. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. We're going to be reading this in a, in a few weeks, so I won't, I won't try to steal uh, Joe's thunder when he gets there. Not that I could do that. It says here, dear friends, friends, let us love one another. Look at the person next to you. Say, I love you. For love comes from God. Say, I love you with the love of God. Whoever loves God does not know God because God is. This is how we know or this is how God showed his love among us. And I, I was reading the ESV, and it says he manifested his love. In other words, his love was made tangible from just a concept, from just an idea, from just a statement or an expression to something actual, something that's been realized, right? This is how God manifested his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent us as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Now, I used this joke in the first service, kind of went, went, went. But do I have any Star Wars fans? Okay, who can tell me who shot first, Han Solo or Greedo? Han shot first. I mean, it's up for debate, right? Who loved first, me or God? God loved first. God loved me. And this is very much along the lines of what we read in Romans 5, right? That God loved, God initiated, God pursued, God demonstrated. I was not loving God. You were not loving God. Our default position is we were sinners, born sinners, born just to do us, that even though we're looking for love, even though we have the God-shaped hole in our heart, we also have the desire to fill it with everything but God. Isn't that fascinating? It's the human nature. The image of God makes us crave the love of God. The sinfulness makes us desire anything but God. And so I don't know about you. I wasn't praising God and loving God. And he says, oh, I like that one. I wasn't fixing myself up trying to, you know, be righteous before God. I was a sinner. I was lost. I was not looking for God. God was looking for me. And that was very real because the, 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 the day I, I got born again, I didn't plan on coming to church. I had no Christian friends, no Christian background to speak of. I had some strangers talk to me about, on the street about Jesus, and there I was, an arrogant, perverse agnostic, and Jesus saved me uh, that, that very weekend. I'm not going to get into the whole story, but he saved me that weekend. He pursued me. He loved me. And then when I saw how much he loved me, I could love him because I learned what love is. And I could love others. I want us to sing this. If you could pull those lyrics up. I want to take a praise break. And we're going to sing an old spiritual. You guys know this one? You're going to learn it. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me one more time. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. Woo! Praise him. Praise him. Hallelujah. Wow. Now, granted, there are going to be some people, everything I said just bounced off of you. You know, you heard it, but you didn't understand it. You saw it, but you did not perceive it. And when we have our altar time, I'm going to invite you to this altar to behold, to clearly perceive the love of God. Amen. You're going to get that because I could tell you God loves you, but if God tells you God loves you, that's, that changes everything. Amen? Well, let's read on. Well, before we read on, I, I got to make one more point here, and that is talking about the blessed hope. 
man, we got a lot of ground to cover. I was really excited teaching this text because it would be a lot of teaching. This is so rich. There are so many foundational doctrines of the Christian faith in this text. Let me give you an example here where it says in, um, in chapter two, uh, verse 2 here, chapter 3, verse 2, it says, But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. What does that mean? That is in reference to the blessed hope. In chapter uh, 2.28 that we read, it's, it talks about when he appears, when Jesus returns, that we would not be ashamed at his coming. When he comes and we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Does that make sense? That is the blessed hope. Everyone say, blessed hope. When the world talks about hope, they're very vague. It's usually just this, this vague understanding. Things will get better. Things will work out somehow. When the Christian talks about hope, they are talking about the return of Christ making all things new, including me. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. I want to teach you for a moment, give you a crash course in, in probably what is one of the most important uh, subjects in Christianity that does not get talked about. It is the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 deals in, with the resurrection at length. First, it talks about how Jesus raised from the dead, the historical fact of it, past tense, but then also how we will raise from the dead, future tense. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So to use that example, you have a kernel of wheat, right? You plant it into the ground, and figuratively speaking, the kernel dies, but then it comes out of the ground. It raises from the dead in that sense, but it comes up in a different form, you see? And that is how the resurrection of Jesus was. When Jesus came up out of the tomb, out of the ground, was he zombie Jesus needing a blood transfusion? No, he came up, it was the same Jesus, same body, but the body was different. Do you understand? And I think that's worth clarifying because Jehovah Witnesses actually have a, a very weird doctrine. They believe in the resurrection, but it will actually be like a different you, but with the same memories or something like that. This is the same you, same body, but the body is made new. So the kernel of wheat now becomes an actual stalk of wheat. Or you could think of a sunflower seed comes out as a sunflower. It might also be helpful to think about metamorphosis, the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. It's the same creature, but in a new form, right? And so that's what is being discussed here. But let's skip ahead to verse 42. It says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. How many know your body in its current state is perishable? How many of your back hurts right now? That was being prophetic, right? Any room you go in right now, somebody's got some kind of ache, right? 
Because your body is perishable, and no matter how much you take care of your body, your body is going to die. It's going to perish. It's going to break down. It's going to expire. Your heart will stop beating. You'll stop breathing. Done, right? It is sown perishable. It is sown into the ground. And that's why even burial, by the way, has a sacredness to it because the body being buried like a seed in the ground will come up out of the ground anew. But it is sown perishable. It is raised imperishable. So in the resurrection, your back will not hurt anymore. Amen. He's, he'll turn the keg into a six-pack. Amen. You won't wear glasses. You won't have the diabetes. It will be raised imperishable. It will not have the same weakness and infirmity. It's not going to die like it died the first time. Do you understand? And again, this is how Jesus' body was. His body sown perishable, raised imperishable. It goes on. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Think about the fact that we have to clothe most of our bodies. It is considered dishonorable for them to be naked. Yet at the beginning, Adam and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. Once they sinned, they became ashamed and their first instinct was to clothe themselves. But the, the body that is sown in dishonor, that has this kind of taboo element to it, that, that we don't want to expose it because we know there's something inherently wrong. It's not what it's supposed to be will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Okay? And so again, all of this is parallel to Jesus' resurrection. Jesus did not raise spiritually. Like, oh, my spirit's going to go to heaven, and then my body will still be there. Anyone could say that because you don't have to prove it. There's no way to prove it, right? If Jesus' tomb is empty, you know his body raised, and you know whether the claim is true or not. When he says, reach out and touch my hands, put your hand in my side, that is tangible. That is the same body that was sown, perishable, was raised imperishable, sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Same body, right? And so that is parallel to us. When we see him, we will be like him, resurrected. But I want to read on here. Verse 45, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. You guys want a nuggy? You guys want a heavy revy? Just stay there. Where it says, the first Adam and the last Adam, right? We know the first Adam is Adam, Adam and Eve in the garden. Last Adam is who? Jesus, okay? Jesus is the last Adam because he puts the kibosh on that fallen order of humanity. Do you understand? Now it says the first man in reference to Adam and then the second man. Can you take off that highlight, please? I want to be able to read everything, okay? So the first Adam, he ushers sin and death into the world. The last Adam, Jesus, puts the kibosh on it, and he ends the old Adamic order of sin and death, okay? And then it talks about the first man and the second man. It doesn't say the first man and the last man, but it's the first man, Adam, right? The one who brings sin and death into the world, and then the last man, or the second man, I'm sorry, the second man. Why? Because he is the second, but he is really the first of a new order, of a new life. 
And the Bible elsewhere talks about those who are in Adam, those who are in Christ, those who are of the old order of life, those who are in the new order of life, those who are of the old humanity, those who are in the new humanity. That's just a heavy, heavy, something to, to, to contemplate. But that's talking about Jesus. He brings resurrection life. Going on, verse uh, 48, as was the earthly man, so are those of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the heavenly man, so shall we bear the image of the, of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Verse 50, keep scrolling please. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's back up here. I think you get the sense of what a new body is like. But just a thousand foot view, when you die, your body goes in the ground. Your spirit ascends into the presence of God in heaven. But that is just the hotel suite. God is preparing a mansion for you. New heaven, new earth, new body. Why do I think that's important? Because so many people, even many Christians, have a misapprehension about the afterlife. They think they'll be sitting on a cloud, plucking a harp as a disembodied spirit. That is not it. The Bible, Revelation, very clear. New heaven, new earth, new body. So it's going to be a physical world we will inhabit with our bodies, but everything is resurrected, everything made new. Amen? Amen. Now that's as far as we can go uh, for today, and really that's as far as we could go because you, you can only imagine what that will be like when we are with him and like him. Wow, what a good God. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time. Let's read on verses 4 through 6. And, and as we do so, you see in, in the passage I just read, this is, this is what it means to be a child of God. This is what it means to be loved of God. This is the destiny of God's children to see Christ, to be raised, to, to, to be with Him, right? But here's what will get in the way. Sin. Everyone say sin. Say it like you hate it. Sin. Ugh. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. My son's doing JBQ, Junior Bible Quiz. That's one of the questions. According to 1 John, um, what is the definition of sin? Sin is lawlessness. It is transgressing God's law. We must be clear here. So God has a law. God has do's and do nots. Do you understand? God has a, a standard of what is right and what is wrong. We must abide by that. So any sin becomes a transgression of that law. In James chapter 2, it says if you break one law, you've broken the whole law. 
So you, let's say you told one fib in your entire life. You have still broken God's law. It's part of the same thing. A helpful way is to understand it like a, like a, uh, like a chain uh, formed by many links, right? If you break one link in the chain, the entire chain is severed, right? So you are hanging over the precipice of the pit of hell by a chain, and if any one of those links on the chain is broken, you fall in there. And that's how it be. But we, not, we don't just break one chain. We break a lot of chains. We were professional chain breakers and not the kind we sing about in our worship songs. We were professional lawbreakers, I should say. We were good at sinning. We liked sinning. Sinning was the best. What are you doing this weekend, man? Oh, I'm going to go sin. I'm going to go Netflix and sin. I'm, you know? We can go to the... Yep. For a lot of people, right, sin is just what we do for fun. My age group, early 30-somethings now, man, all the people I know from high school, they just live drunk. They live high. They, they don't even know fun in a wholesome sort of way. We have to live in that. I'm doing ride sharing right now. I am so grieved just overhearing conversations and people talk so casually about hooking up. Ugh. Like their way of saying how do you do is some sort of sexual, you know, behavior. God have mercy on us. We just sin so casually, so, so freely, so brazenly, breaking God's laws. You got to understand that you don't break God's laws. God's laws break you. That breaking the law comes with a transgression. You can't expect to break laws in our country and, and never expect to be caught, to be prosecuted. Do you understand? You cannot brazenly break God's laws and expect that to be the case either. God will hold us accountable. It is appointed to man to die once and then face judgment. So what do we do then? We're sinners. We've broken God's law. He goes on, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. He that appeared is Jesus to take away our sins. Here's another heavy doctrine that I won't have time, but it is called the atonement. Everyone say atonement. Atonement is in reference to the sacrifice of Jesus taking away your sins so that at the cross he dies in your place for your sins. He takes it upon himself. It is a callback to the Old Testament sacrifices so that if a sheep, for example, was slaughtered, its blood, the Leviticus says that the life is in the blood, its life is poured out in exchange for your life. You deserve to die for your sins. Your sins cost you your life, but instead of you paying for your sins, the lamb pays for it. So in John 1.29, the Baptist, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away our sins, and he does it three ways. Can I tell you? He takes away the power of sin. He takes away the power of sin so that once upon a time you were getting pimped by sin. Even when you knew it was wrong, you couldn't help yourself. You kept on going back to the same relationships, same habits. You, you couldn't rise above it. You could not change yourself. You were the slave of sin. He takes the power of sin so that you can say no. Let me, let me be real here. You're looking at somebody who has not viewed pornography in over a decade. Okay? Over a decade, have I been tempted? Have I been tempted? Yes. 
but every temptation does that to lead me along by the hand. Yes, then, yes, then. I guess I, ha- you know, I guess I have to uh, dishonor my wife. No, I can say no. You can say no to any sin, any temptation. He has broken the power of it. He has taken the penalty of it. And this is what I've already touched on, that he dies in your place. This is substitutionary atonement. Either you pay for your sins in hell or he pays for your sins at the cross. But sin's got to be paid for. Because as we said, God is love. God loves everyone. And we make that to be such an ooey-gooey sentimental thing. But God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. And because God is love, God hates sin. God hates wickedness. And so God has to deal with sin. And if God judges the pedophile God will, for their crimes, God will judge you for your crimes. Because he don't play favorites, you understand? God's not going to judge Trump. Some of y'all just hate Trump. You need to repent of hatred. God will judge Trump for adultery and all these other things, but God will judge you too. Amen. Amen. And so we need to get our hearts right with God, and we, we, you know, we, we need to understand that he takes away the penalty of sin, that it's only by God's grace, it's only by the sacrifice of Jesus that I'm not going to go to hell forever with no hope of escape, with no hope of redemption. Do you understand? Without Christ, as Romans 5 says, we were powerless, utterly lost. Lastly, I say that he will, future tense, take away the presence of sin because we have to deal honestly. Even John says, I write this so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, it is possible that a Christian would sin. There's still the temptations out there. Okay, we have to deal honestly with that. That's why everything I said about the resurrection is so important. That the flesh, your flesh as it is now, has those desires in it. And you could give in to your flesh and you can sin in different ways. You can sin lusting. You could sin, you know what I'm saying, giving into addictions and habits and all that. The resurrection body will not have those things. The presence of sin from the world and from your flesh removed forever. Amen? He, he appeared to take away our sin, the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. Can I get an amen? amen? And so as we read on, it says that he appeared to take away sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. That's just fascinating. In him is no sin, okay? So it follows that if you live in him, in whom there is no sin, you don't have sin as your roommate, in other words, In him is no sin. Are you in him? If you are in him, you cannot keep on sinning. If you live in him, if you abide in him. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now at the beginning of his letter, John speaks because he was an eyewitness of Jesus in the flesh, right? He talks about that which we have seen, our hands have touched, our eyes have seen. So he knows that when some false preacher comes along, they haven't seen Jesus, he has. It's like, you Cracker Jacks don't know Jesus. I know Jesus, and Jesus ain't like that. And that's how, and that's how it's going to be. So many people misrepresent Jesus. They have never seen him nor know him, and they front like they did. They front like they have. But if you've seen Jesus, you wouldn't see the world the same. If you know Jesus, your relationship with everything else changes. 
And so that's, that's one of the things you have to understand. It's not like when we say you, you, you need to live holy and stop sinning, it's not saying you have to do that to earn your salvation. But if you are saved and you do know Jesus and you live in Jesus, you're not going to continue in those things. They will disgust you. If you have the hope of resurrection life, you will purify yourself just as he is pure. The things of this world will grow strangely dim. They're not going to be as appealing. They're not going to be as attractive as they once were. And you will see them as an impediment to your ultimate flourishing. Where once you saw God's commands as an impediment to your fun and happiness, you will now see sin as an impediment to your happiness. Because your happiness is bound up in your relationship to Jesus. Reading on, verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Let's, let's just park on that. Do not let anyone lead you astray. So many times the Bible says, do not be deceived. In Jude, we won't turn there, but in Jude, a few books down from here, he talks about those who turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. And that can sum up so much of the false teaching, so many false religions and cults, so much, what, and I've been using this term a lot, liberal theology. There's basically Christians that don't believe the Bible. And so they really abandoned it on a lot of moral issues. They even abandoned it on foundational stuff. Like, is Jesus the only way? I don't know. It's up to you. Because they don't believe this. They don't have a standard. They don't have God's law as a standard. So we're told, don't let anyone lead you astray. They can lead you astray in so many ways. Nobody's perfect. What's packed in there? Well, God doesn't expect you to be perfect. God doesn't expect you to stop sinning. God doesn't expect you to change. He just knows you're a little weakling. He knows you're a little runt. He knows that you're never going to rise above sin. You're never going to rise above porn. And he doesn't expect you to. And he's going to forgive you. And he loves you anyway, right? That's kind of what we say when we say nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? There are so many ways that we can rationalize our sin, excuse our sin. And we could even do it using parts of the Bible, Right, and I meet Christians who leave, uh, who leave the faith and leave this church, and they're living in sin, and they have a hundred one excuses, and when all their excuses run out, I'm just judging them. How about that? You shall not judge. They, uh, that's their trump card. You shall not judge. Can you give me a chapter and verse for that, please? But that's it. Lead, don't let anyone lead you astray. And how might they lead you astray? Well, they're going to tell you something other than this. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. If you do what is right, that makes you righteous. Simple equation there. Just as he, Jesus, is righteous. If you do what is right, you're acting like Jesus, and you are righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, I want you to see this. In verse 5, it says that he appeared to take away our sins. And then in verse 8, the Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. So he appeared to take away our sins and to destroy the devil's work. You see that? Because the devil's work, it's, it's sin, ink. You know, that's his business. And business is good in a lot of places, isn't it? 
Sin, Inc. If the devil can keep you sinning, he don't care what church you go to. He don't care who your pastor is. He don't care if you're religious. If he can keep you sinning, he can keep you lost. He could keep you away from Jesus. He don't care if your conscience is at ease or not. Some people sin and their conscience is at ease. They feel, they feel a peace about it. Oh, I've prayed about my adultery. I've prayed about it. I feel God's peace about it. My pastor told me it's okay. They, that's not, that's not going to fly, but the devil don't care. He doesn't care if you're miserable in your sin or you're happy in your sin. There's some miserable sinners and there's some happy sinners. Sometimes the happy sinners are the worst. Jesus talked about prostitutes and tax collectors. They know they're wrong, but there are some folks and their sin is arrogant pride. Their sin is that they're just happy, middle-class people who think, well, there's good people and there's bad people, and I'm one of the good people. Because I don't, I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't eat people. I don't murder people, right? I'm not a robber. I'm not like those folks. If the devil could keep you in the sin of pride, whether it's the sin of pride or the sin of drug addiction, he don't, it doesn't matter to him. As long as he keeps you sinning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And that's what I'm saying here. This is not legalism. Okay? I once read this text. I worked at Teen Challenge, Christian Drug Rehab. Some of you may be familiar with that ministry. And there was a student there who was offended when I read this. I didn't even comment on it. Like, sometimes I could be wrong. I could, like, add my two cents, and my two cents not exactly line up with this. All I did was read it. He got offended. This guy was a professing Christian. This guy was even a fan of a lot of the popular preachers in our day, you know, the guys that are YouTube famous. And he was offended. I said, dude, you're offended by the Bible. And what's got to change? You are the Bible. And so, it, but, but I was trying to tell him, this is not legalism. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We're not telling you stop sinning so that God will love you. Because you can never stop sinning on your own. We're telling you that God loves you. And because he loves you, has broken the power of sin in your life. So stop making an excuse for it. Don't let the devil pimp you. Don't let a false teacher lead you astray. Don't deceive yourself. You can live free from sin. He came to take it away and destroy the devil's work. I'd like us to um, get the uh, band ready at this point. Reading on in verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. These are very important phrases here. I, I, I touched on this in verse 28. Born of God. Everyone say that with me now. Born of God. Another way to put it is born again. One of the reasons we know that 1 John has the same writer as the Gospel of John is that they say a lot of the same things. They hit a lot of the same notes. And the one of the notes is that we must be born of God or born again. Even other writers in Scripture talk about us being born from the Word of God. 
Let's look at John chapter 3, verse 3. John chapter 3, verse 3. You see, in order for a child to be a child, they must be born, right? Before you can be a child of God, you must be born of God. You were born a sinner. Some people say, no, I was born right the first time. Tell your therapist that. Why do you front like your poop don't stink? Like you don't have flaws and regrets and failures and you've lied to yourself and let yourself and other people down so many times. Why do you front like you're perfect? You were not born right the first time. You were born a sinner. And from the youngest age, it came natural for you to sin, for you to lie, for you to be selfish, for you to even be cruel and be a bully. We just saw that video of the the, the boy with dwarfism who is crying, I don't want to live anymore because of bullying. Little kids, we don't teach them to bully. We teach them not to bully because they're already doing it. In fact, so much of our self-help systems in this world, so much of our criminal justice system, everything is a futile attempt to stop ourselves from sinning. That's why we must be born again. You were born the first time a sinner. You need to be born again a saint. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to a Pharisee, somebody who knows the Bible very well, but he's about to school them. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. How many know that's silly? Verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, 1 John 3, he says, born of God. John 3, born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes to dwell within your spirit, giving you new birth, making you a new creation, changing you, changing your heart, changing who you are at the most fundamental level. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Speaking of this new birth, if you're born of God, you cannot continue sinning because you're not a sinner. I know, I I don't don't know if that, that should have got some amens. Well, first of all, it should have got some amens. And I know when some people say that, There's a weird theology that says Christians can't sin and we don't have to repent of sin or deal with sin. That's not what I'm saying. But show me somewhere in the Bible where a Christian is called a sinner. We are called again and again saints, holy ones. God changes me. God changes my heart. God changes my desire to where I used to love sin. How many used to love sin? You you could 
act crazy, feel nothing, feel no remorse. And now God has touched your heart. You cannot continue sinning. You're grieved. Even if you just told somebody off or you were a little snippy, you just can't let it slide like you used to. And you want to do deeds of righteousness where before you didn't give a rip or a flip about your fellow man or about the state of their soul. But God is moving in your heart to do good works. This was an Old Testament verse, but it's a New Testament promise. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. Again, this is speaking of the Old Testament ritual involving the priest sacrifices. They had to undergo a ritual cleansing. But it's not outward, it's inward. I'll cleanse your soul. I'll cleanse the stain of your sin, the guilt of it. I'll take away all your idols. The idols that you used to love and worship, they're going to be no more. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Let's all stand and if we could have altar workers, please. God does it. God does it. I take no credit for my righteousness. Anything good in me, anything good I have done, it is the work of God. Because without God, I could never do it. God has changed me. God has adopted me as his dear child. And I didn't do good things to make him love me and want to adopt me. But he saw me in the pit of sin a miserable, wretched, I was his enemy, and he adopted me, and he clothed me, and he gave me a new spirit, and he changed me. Let's finish the passage in 1 John as we reflect on this, all of this. Verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Okay, so everything that comes after that colon... In verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. This is the dividing line. This is the way to tell. How many know there's people who live like, who act, who say they're children of God, but they live like they're children of the devil? How can you know the difference? Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Now that last part, I think we're going to touch on more next week because he's going to talk about love for other Christians. But that may be something you need to come to this altar and deal with. If you lack love for Christians, maybe it's just a Christian or a few Christians that you have ought with. Or maybe it's your general perception of evangelicals or Christians that you're always throwing them under the bus. And you're always in agreement with the world about Christians. All the criticisms that are lodged at Christians, you agree with. These are your brothers and sisters. This is the holy body of Christ. Do you understand? Your allegiance is to, is to God and his kingdom over this culture, over your culture, over your family. This is your family. If you don't love your brother or sister, are, are they indeed your brother or sister? Are you in the family? This is the way to know, are you God's child? Do you do what is right? 
Or do you continue in sin? Do you love sin? Do you justify sin? Do you explain away your sin? Do you break God's commands and think nothing of it? You are welcome to come and receive prayer. Men with men and women with women. There's two types of people in this world. Children of God and children of the devil. If you are not a child of God, guess what you are? But you don't have to leave that way. God can change you. God longs to have mercy on you. God loved you and demonstrated his love while you were a sinner. To take away your sins and destroy the work of the devil in your life. If you need to be born again, come up, receive prayer. They're not going to receive pray a magic prayer, but they're going to tell you how you can receive salvation, how you can be adopted as a child of God. And if you are a Christian, but you do not do what is right, there are some things you do that are wrong, that are out of step, and you have a sin problem, come up to this altar, receive prayer. If you have a problem with Christians, or a Christian come up to this altar. And lastly, as I alluded to earlier, if you need to behold the great love of God, if you need to move from the head to the heart, when it comes to the love of God, if you need to stop hearing from Jared, God loves you, and hear from God, God loves you, come up to this altar.